Amen. Thank you, Pastor Benjamin. Uh, if we have not met, my name is Pastor Drew. It's good to see all of you all. I was about to say your smiling faces, but I see none of your smiling faces. Um, but it's good to see you nonetheless. Um, as uh, Diane mentioned, if you are interested in getting emails from Redeemer, uh, if you are new here, uh, you can fill out a visitor card, and we'd love to take you out to lunch or coffee to learn more about the church. But also, if you just want to get on the weekly email a list, uh, just indicate that on the welcome card and turn those in downstairs, and we'll get you on that list. For the uh, meals, those usually go out just to the, the, the members, so we're not soliciting you know random visitors to feed us. Um, but if you do, would like to be a part of the meal training, and are not a member yet, that's totally fine. We will take your meals. We would love for you to be a part of that. Um, But if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. Uh, We're going to be looking at John 6 today. Uh, In this passage, Jesus is continuing to explain what it means to be a follower, a believer in him. Uh, as Pastor Mac preached to us last Sunday, Jesus has done miracles in this chapter. Uh, fed the 5,000. He's done these miracles leading up to this moment to help the people understand that the miracles, though, are just signs and they're pointing to someone. They're not the end. Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. We're going to read that in a few minutes, but I want us to just do a quick summary of last week. Last week, Pastor Mac preached a beautiful sermon where he talked about two things. He said mainly the two things coming from the passage last week was don't settle for signs, don't settle for those miracles, look to the one who did the signs, and also to think eternally. The reason we become consumers is because we lose sight of Jesus' work and love for us beyond what he does in the here and now. So we're going to look at this passage today from John 6 where our guide Jesus doubles down, triples down on this idea of what it looks like to look to him as the one that's the provider, not just for signs, but for true life in him. So John 6, uh, verses 35 and following. You'll see it up on the screen. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can He now say, I came down from heaven? Stop Grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, only he who has, only he has seen the Father. 
Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your Bible that you give to us. And we place it metaphorically over us that we look to it. We look up to it as authority for our understanding of who you are and who we are in you. May we be a people who are willing to submit to the book this morning. Father, we're so grateful for the calling that you've given us. The calling where you first called us to yourself and now we're called to respond to you. And may we live this out well as a church. Father, we pray for those who are hurting amongst us. We pray for those who are at home watching through the camera. We pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That those who are hurting financially or with housing or relationally or with anxiety, that they may be blessed with more and more of Yourself. And Father, may Your kingdom continue to come. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, we were at the pool one great, beautiful summer day, one of the city pools. And one of my girls, and I honestly don't even remember which one. If you ever, you know, have four kids, you'll understand this. But you don't, I don't even remember which one, was sitting by the pool, her cute little self, in one of those pool loungers, uh, kind of the ones that you stretch all the way out in. She had her legs crossed. She had these cute little heart sunglasses on, bright pink, and she's eating a popsicle. And I'll never forget, I don't remember which one it was, but I'll never forget what she said that day. She said, looked up at me and said, Dad, this is the life. This is the life. And we've all been there at one point or another. There's been times, moments of my life where I've looked around, whether it's after a great meal or a great time with people, uh, whether I, you know, if it's an opportunity uh, to sit very close at a sporting event or a concert, and you sit there and you think, this is the life. This is living. Maybe you've been pampered at a spa with some friends for the weekend and you sit back having a cold drink and saying, this is truly living. Well, what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we say that at the fancy spa or the fancy restaurant? This is the life. Well, I know it doesn't mean that we're proclaiming, well, in this moment, I am biologically alive. My heart is beating. My breath, my lungs are flowing breath in and out. I know I'm not just claiming to, one, to somebody else, but my daughter at you know, age six or seven in the pool lounger is not sitting there going, Dad, I am physically alive. No, it's the same word, the life, biologically alive and what we mean is the same word but with two different meanings when we say this is the life we're speaking to some level of satisfaction some level of fullness of life that we feel in that moment 
And this is where, as Christians, when we, we need to understand and remember that the Bible, though the Bibles that we read up here today are written in English, the original Bible in the New Testament was mainly written in the language of Greek. And I'm not going to promise you that I, we do this every week, um, but a lot of times as pastors, we will actually get out the original language to see if there's any gems in there to help us understand the passage better. And this one in particular had a, a part in it that really stuck out to me. You see in English, and this will pop up on the screen, but in English, you'll see that living can mean existence or it can mean that great, great quality of life, the satisfaction, the fullness, meaning, and joy. But in Greek, there's actually two different words there. If I'm telling you, if I'm in the hospital and a doctor saying, this person is alive, they would use the Greek word bios in that sentence. But if we are talking about this is the life, the real, genuine, full, active, vigorous, absolute fullness of life, it's a completely different word in the Greek. It's a, it's a word that is Z-O-E or Zoe. So when Jesus says, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life, and he says, I am the bread of life, what is he saying? We see from the Greek, he's using that unique word and he's preaching them saying, if you want this life, this life that we all strive for, this life that no matter if you are, are nine years old or 90 years old, that you are longing for a life that is full, a life that is satisfied, a life that is, is covered in joy and peace. What he's saying in that moment is this is the life that I offer so we're beginning to put the pieces together a little bit on a confusing passage. I mean, literally, the last thing we, that I read there was, this bread is my flesh. Like, there's okay to be a little bit confused at this point, but let's continue to put the pieces together on what Jesus is telling them and us. First of all, he's talking about a unique life that is not just biologically alive, but we also see the context here, that right before this passage, we flip our Bibles back a page... We remember about a month ago, it was three weeks ago or so, we preached on the miracle of him feeding the 5,000. He fed them fish and he fed them bread. So what Jesus is doing in this moment by saying, I am the bread of life, he is making some connections, some parallels for us. Feasting on the bread and earlier in this chapter leads to a physical life. We need that for our bios, our physical well-being. And the parallel he's making here is that feasting on Jesus leads to Zoe, a life full of satisfaction, meaning, joy, and fullness. Just like the bread is the fuel to make your body go, Jesus is the fuel. What he's proclaiming here is that I am the fuel. Jesus is the fuel to make your spiritual life, your joy, your peace, your Zoe go. So keep this comparison in mind. Feasting on bread for physical life. Feasting on Jesus for, for spiritual life. Verse 47, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. As I've gotten older, now I'm 38 years old, I've understood more and more the importance of healthy eating. 
Now, I wouldn't say that I'm wonderful at this. Um, so if you see me out at La Fonda or somewhere else and I'm having the three shrimp tacos for the third time that week, like no judgment coming my way. But when I was younger, in my, in my earlier 20s, it's almost like the eating unhealthy didn't impact me the same way. I didn't understand. I remember when I worked for Habitat for Humanity, I was one of the ones that was in charge of the builds on a Saturday. And when we had a great volunteer group come out, sometimes they'd come out with eight or ten dozen donuts for us to share. And so I'd give my little spiel in the morning about safety and what all we needed to get done on the house that day. And then when, we, and then when all the volunteers went to their spots to start doing their painting or caulking, whatever they were doing, I would always take a dozen donuts and put it in the cab of my truck. And then as I made a lap around the house, every time I made a lap, I would just eat a donut. And so at age, and nobody knew about this other than me and those donuts, but at age 24, I could have a dozen donuts by 10 a.m. and run a 5K at 1 p.m. Like, I was totally fine. If I had a dozen donuts right now by 10 a.m., I'd be in the fetal position in the corner over there. I understand more now that that unhealthy eating had an impact on me then, probably in ways that I will pay for in 60 years. But at 38, I understand it has an impact almost right away. Can I get an amen from the over 35 crowd? (laughs) But it's hard to eat healthy at times. Can I get another amen for that? It means that I have to say no to unhealthy things that fill up my stomach, but ultimately are not good for me. And the longer I go with eat, without eating healthy food, if it's, you know, 5.30, 6.30 and dinner gets delayed, the longer I go without filling my stomach with healthy food, what happens? The hungrier and hungrier I get and the harder and harder it gets to say no to the unhealthy options. I mean, think about it. Have you ever grocery shopped on an empty stomach? There's actually a study that happened at Cornell to back this up. It's a terrible idea. A read from it says, The researchers at Cornell University conducted a two-part study. The first part conducted in the lab involved 68 participants who were instructed not to eat for five hours prior to the study. Some of those participants were given crackers before grocery shopping, and those participants who were not given crackers, they purchased more high-calorie foods from the store, although the number of food items purchased by the groups were the same. So in essence, the study concluded if you, had, if you filled up your belly right before you went grocery shopping, you didn't choose as bad of food. And in other news, is water wet? Yes, it is. Like, if somebody else wants to pay somebody to do a study like this, let me know. I'm happy to just give them this conclusion. It's like, do you, does it stink to be an Atlanta sports fan? Yes. We don't need to do a study about that. Like, these are obvious points of life. If we are hungry... The longer we go and we are hungrier and hungrier, the more bad choices we make with what to eat. Every time I go to the grocery shop, uh, grocery store on an empty stomach, I leave with prepackaged cake or Oreos or beef jerky. One of the three. And why do I do that? It's because I am hungry and I want an immediate fix for that hunger. And isn't it the same thing spiritually? Jesus is trying to help us understand that our desire, our hunger for the good life, something that we all have that is is a part of us just like our hunger for food, is, is and can only be fully fulfilled in Him. 
that Zoe life that we long for, that we seek that's full of joy, fullness, and satisfaction, has always been and will always be only found in a thriving, healthy relationship with Jesus. For brothers and sisters, don't we go shopping elsewhere. James Smith says the heart's hunger is infinite, which is why it will ultimately be disappointed with anything merely finite. Humans are those strange creatures who can never be fully satisfied by anything created, though that never stops us from trying. When we go looking, brothers and sisters, to things other than Jesus, it leaves us as spiritually empty as that dozen donuts leaves us physically empty. We may experience a temporary satisfaction, but ultimately it does more damage to us than we ever care to admit on the front end. And this is not just when we blatantly sin. As a church, as pastors, we will talk about sin week in and week out, not to shame or guilt anyone, but because we recognize that sin does significant damage to us individually, us as families, and us as a community. And yes, so often we can turn to things, turn away from Jesus, and turn to things that are blatant sins in hopes that they will satisfy them. We pursue them, we eat them, because we are longing for them to fulfill something in us. We think of things like sexual sin or drug addiction or things like theft. And so, yes, I want you to hear me from the pulpit say, yes, like, don't steal things, thinking that will help you be fulfilled. Like, I want you to understand that Jesus gives the freedom to break addictions, the freedom to say no to these things that are harmful to us. But it doesn't simply come, the freedom doesn't simply come from trying hard not to do it. But instead, feasting on Jesus. But where the church has failed us, and I mean the big C, the big church as a whole, not specifically talking to Redeemer, what we've, a way that we've failed in preaching a passage like this, where we've dropped the ball, is that we've turned Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but we turned it into, into as a list of blatant sins of saying, don't do this and you'll be fine. But instead, when we think about the Zoe life, the good life, the ways that you and I look to have a good life, it means that first and foremost, it is anything, anything can rob us of this apart from Jesus. So yes, it is the blatant sins. Yes, it is the things that we all know we shouldn't be doing. But there's also so many other, quote-unquote, good things that we can put in the place of Jesus as the ultimate thing. And I want to be clear here that when I, make, when I talk about these things, it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy things. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy relationships. It means that we have the proper perspective on where the ultimate joy comes from. So how does it go wrong? I'm going to give some examples here. This is not an exhaustive list, but to help you understand where we stray and how we can go back to Jesus. So one way it goes wrong is that we turn, in, turn relationships, the pursuit of relationships, into the ultimate, seeking for it to be the ultimate source of our joy and our Zoe life. We turn to people to make us feel significant and joyful when that ultimately can only come from Jesus. An example of this is when our friendships, though they are a gift from God, and when we are filled up by Jesus, we understand that they add to our life. 
They are not the source of our joy. So how does it feel? How crushing is it to you and I when a friend disappoints you? If we are being filled up by Jesus, we are meeting with Christ in the Scriptures, if we are, are thriving in our relationship with the Lord, yes, it hurts when we have a friend fail us, a friend sin against us, but it doesn't crush us to smithereens. But if we're looking to that relationship to be the thing that fills us up, to get us through the day, we're saying that is where we get our Zoe life. And when it fails we crumble. Pursuit of money and what money can buy. This is how another way we stray and go wrong. We see that the pursuit of money is the good life. So we turn to money to make us feel valued or important when that ultimately comes from Jesus. And I don't mean praying for your needs to get met. We long to see your needs get met and want to come alongside you as a church. I'm, t- I'm talking about when we constantly are concerned with all the things that we don't have that money could buy. Thinking the grass is always greener on the other side. And so we look to money, whether we have it or don't have it, as the source of our Zoe life. Sexual intimacy. When we have our deepest desires met by Jesus, we understand that intimacy is a beautiful gift of God to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage and we pursue it that way, in that manner. But good gosh, if we lose perspective in intimacy and lust, the pleasure, the vulnerability, the longing for acceptance, if that becomes something where that's the ultimate pursuit for us, It destroys us from the inside out. Another example is comfort. When this is the ultimate in your life, there's no end to it. And what a distraction the pursuit of comfort is in and of itself is to our mission to the Lord. It doesn't mean that we pursue difficulty for the sake of difficulty. It doesn't mean that we, uh, do we dispel all comforts. Like we, I, I hope that you have things in your life that you enjoy alongside the people that you love. It's not to get rid of all of that, but it's to recognize that when we see comfort as more important than Jesus, it will slowly eat away at us. Pursuit of adventure. This doesn't apply to everybody, but for some of us, there's the thrill of of pursuing adventure. And when we pursue that, then we feel the Zoe, we feel the good life. We turn to adventure to make us feel alive when ultimately that that lasts for a minute or an hour or a day or a week and we're right back to where we started. Two more here. One is love for people. So often when we pursue a love for people, I may have switched those up on the slides, a love for people, when we're filled up with Jesus, it propels us to love radically, to forgive radically, to pursue people radically. But when we turn from Jesus and look to people to be our ultimate joy, satisfaction in life, we make a mess of them and a mess of ourselves. What happens when we long for acceptance of people over everything else and they disagree, the people that we long for acceptance from disagree on what the Word of God says about fill in the blank. What happens when I long for the acceptance of someone, but then they come to tell me how I view understanding of sexuality from the Bible differs from what they view it leads me to a place if I long for their acceptance over Jesus's 
to compromise what I believe is true for the sake of their love. Do you guys understand the pattern that happens here? When we put anything on the throne of Jesus other than Jesus himself, it will quickly or slowly tear us to shreds. Another one, the pursuit of being right. We see this with our involvement, our our love as Americans in this current season with politics. And maybe better said, it's pursuit of making sure that we're the ones that are understanding how best the world works. When we are connected to Jesus, we should be people that love truth and pursue truth. Do not get me wrong on that for a do not get me wrong for a second on that. But the love and pursuit of truth should and always always should be connected to how we love other people. Brothers and sisters, if our communication of truth does not line up with the fruit of the Spirit, the peace, patience, kindness, joy, it's revealing that you and I are not finding our Zoe, our life in Jesus, but we're looking to some fulfillment through being right and making sure everybody else knows about it. And we've got to talk about where we are grocery shopping for our food. We have, do we have, we have the arrogance, I think sometimes I see this in my own heart, to where we as Christians, especially if we've been walking with the Lord for a while, we have forgotten how vulnerable we can be with how influenced, how influenced we can be. We think about this and we think, okay, we can tiptoe close to the world, close to every, you know, the things that we know are, are not helpful to us, but we can tiptoe, we can dabble, and just with the hopes, with the thought of we won't be impacted by it. But brothers and sisters, as one of your pastors, I can tell you right now, you and I will be impacted by it. And so what am I talking about here? I'm talking about like we have got to recognize that what the media, whether it's television or movies or whatever it is, when we do not have a filter on to say how this person, this couple, this family goes about their life may or may not be in line with the Scripture, we fail to recognize the influence that can have on our hearts. And it's all over the place. Even my favorite show, Ted Lasso right now. Can I get an amen for the love of Ted Lasso? So for Ted Lasso, which I'm sure there's going to be some more sermon illustrations to come, so just be ready in the next few months. But with Ted Lasso, a show that has got an enormous amount of wholesomeness to it. And I love the characters on that show. Sam in particular is about my favorite character in all of television right now. But one of the the storylines in season one was how it just wasn't a big deal at all for an unmarried couple to have intimacy, casual intimacy with each other. And we wrote it off, and I wrote it off. It's like, oh, I'm just kind of watching a show, but I've got to watch that with the filter of recognizing that has an impact on me. We think about this with where we get our, our political viewpoints. And we think about this by saying, uh, helping, I, need, I need us all to understand this is not an issue of the right or the left. But when I talk to pastor after pastor after pastor over the last 12 to 18 months, every one of them will talk about how politics is shredding their congregation to pieces. And this is something that somehow the Lord, and not to completely, I know that there's still, you know, we've had issue, you know, our you know, bumps along the way, figuring out how we address and talk about political things, but this is something the Lord has really kept us unified as a church and how to love each other well, even when we disagree. But when I think about it, I almost made a, made a video clip, but I decided not to this morning. When we think about 
where we're getting our information. It's not only now, it's not only now is saying, oh, this is, you know, it's, we're just uh, hearing an echo chamber of all the views that we already believe being told by people that we trust, therefore we believe them anymore. It's not just that now that it's turned into the people on one side trying to convince us of how dumb and stupid everyone on the other side is. And if you think that you and I are not impacted by that, let me tell you right now, you are dead wrong. You are dead wrong, and I am dead wrong if I don't think I'm impacted by that, because it's not simply, we're not simply coming to get an understanding of, uh, of how, what we think about immigration. What we, we, we might get that, but we also hear that person paint the other side as horribly dumb and stupid individuals. And so what we see in our churches, and thankfully Redeemer has been protected by this from this in the bulk of, uh, you know, in the majority of the majority of the manner. But what we see in churches is that that's how Christians are starting to view each other. And you can see this if you go on, you know, social media or Facebook and you, you know, watch how, you know, your aunts or uncles or your friends or your high school friends are viewing the other side. It is atrocious. Like it is not the Bible. When we talk about the scriptures, we talk about the, you know, Galatians 5, we talk about the passages that are up there about what it looks like for us to pursue love, to bear with one another. That is not the God. What, the, what those men and women are explaining for how to view people that think differently than you, that is not biblical. And so you and I have got to recognize that if we're grocery shopping there, that's what we're eating. And that has an impact on us as believers. But the solution to this isn't simply recognizing the erroneous ways we look for significance or joy. I mean, yes, if you turn friendships or any of these things into an idol, confess this. But it, just doesn't, it doesn't come from just not eating this food. It comes, brothers and sisters, from being filled up with Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, I'll give you great bread. He comes to us and says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give you for the life of the world. C.S. Lewis had a great statement on this, and it's a little bit long, so bear with me here. He says, it seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too Weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fool, creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We think we want lesser bread, but may we stop settling. When we have the opportunity day in and day out to feast on Jesus, Lewis says, the never-ending, always-fulfilling bread of life, may we come and get filled up. And what this passage makes me think about is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and later on in John, his illustration of the vine and the branches, where Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And what we see in that passage is what it means to abide with Christ doesn't mean to simply go and do great things. It means first and foremost to be what? To be connected to Him. To have intimacy with Him. Connection with Jesus is just like eating bread. We are called to have a daily connection with Jesus, just like the vine and the branches. And it also means we have a dependence upon Jesus. 
May we be humble enough to recognize that we are hungry and we need to go eat with Jesus. As our physical health, just with our physical health, spiritually we are dependent on Christ. And this is a continuation with Jesus. This walking out of a life connected to Jesus, just like the vine and the branches, the bread to our souls. When we are physically hungry, we eat. And what happens the next day? We're hungry again and we eat again. And may it be the same, brothers and sisters, with our relationship with Christ. Recognizing that we are hungry and may we eat. And when we come hungry again, may we recognize that He's ready to meet our needs again. So instead of running around hoping that empty pleasures will fulfill us, the Gospel tells you and I that we have meaningfulness and joy that we long for not by changing our circumstances, not by getting the things that are the, green, the grass is greener on the other side tell us we need, but by the Gospel changes us by, by filling us up in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Your goodness to us. So thankful for the life that you have called us to, to love neighbor, to love you, is first and foremost a life of intimacy with you. And may we recognize as the people of God that our joy, our hope, our peace, our fullness comes from being fed and filled up by you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.